Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. As we turn to God's Word this morning, we're continuing in our series in the book of Judges. So I invite you to turn to Judges chapter 4. You know, over the past few weeks, we've seen a cycle taking place in the book of Judges. A cycle of Israel's sin, followed by God's faithful discipline to bring suffering on Israel, to turn them back from sin. Followed by God's salvation through a deliverer. As he raised up Othniel and then Ehud and then Shamgar to save Israel from the hand of their enemies. We're going to find ourselves in yet another story that follows this same pattern this morning. God saves Israel this time through Deborah, Barak, and Jael. Now Judges tells this story twice. Tells it once in chapter 4 in a very factual, narrative way. And then it tells the same story again in chapter 5, only that time in a poetic victory song sung by Deborah and Barak. And what I want to do this morning is I want to read chapter 4 for us, but then I'm going to flip back and forth to chapter 5 to see how chapter 5 fills in some of these details. So if you have your Bibles or want to use one of the pew Bibles, let's begin by reading Judges chapter 4 together. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin king of Canaan who reigned in Hadzor. The commander of his army was Sisera who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help for he had 900 chariots of iron and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men in Mount Tabor taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I surely will go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. 
Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by, by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin king of Hadzor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. And so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. This is God's word. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would use it to remind us of who you are and your character and your salvation this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. One commentator has noted that this story has all the makings of a perfect fairy tale. You know how fairy tales work. They begin once upon a time, and they then introduce some wicked character who seems unstoppable. It's a big, bad wolf, or an evil stepmother, or perhaps a usurper with a million men in his army. But then the, the story goes on to tell about the courage or cunning of a particular person who unexpectedly overcomes that villain. Maybe it's the wise pig with the brick house, or the prince who breaks the curse with a kiss, or the lost princess who shows up. And then we read that those in the story live happily ever after. And I think you could, you could imagine, can't you, reading this story? Once upon a time, there was an evil king with a fierce general who did whatever he wanted because he had 900 chariots of armor or iron. And the poor people suffered But one day, a woman under a palm tree and a guy in a thunderstorm and a wife with a tent peg showed up and beat that wicked king and the land had rest for 40 years. It's kind of how this story goes. Though, of course, this is not just a fairy tale. This is actual history. It's 100% true. It happened in all of its details. And of course, the highlight of this story is not the cunning or courage of this person or that person, but it's a story of God who delivers his people and saves them yet again. In fact, if you wanted to tag the moral of this story the way Aesop tags the moral of his fables, I think we would tag this story with the following point. God is the one who saves his people, even as he blesses those who offer themselves in faith to do his work. 
God is the one who saves his people, even as he blesses those who offer themselves in faith to do his work. And I want to see that as we work through this story. I want to look at Israel's pervasive sin, then see God's sovereign salvation, and then we'll look at faith's willing obedience. But let's start with Israel's pervasive sin. You know, verse 1 of chapter 4 is as chilling as it is familiar. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, back in chapter 2, we were told this would happen. We were told right up front that whenever a judge died, the people would turn back and be more corrupt than their fathers and again go after the gods of Canaan. But it's one thing to read that statement in the introduction. It's another to watch it play out, episode after episode, chapter after chapter, as again and again. And one might think that the repeated suffering would remind Israel, hey, this doesn't actually go well for us. You might think that God's repeated salvation would break through to Israel's heart. But it does not, because none of these judges solve the real problem of sin and its grip that it had on Israel's heart. See, sin was was a disease in their hearts, and it could be masked for a time with the ibuprofen of a godly judge, but it was not healed. And this recurring pattern reminds us, I think, that sin can lie hidden when either external pressure or persuasion keeps it under wraps. It's kind of like a second grade classroom. A teacher can boast all she wants about what little angels fill her second grade classroom, but we will only know their real virtue once that teacher steps out of the room and we see how they behave. And here is Israel. They may have towed the line for 40 years. They may have been just fine serving Yahweh when that was the thing to do and it seemed to be working and a judge was leading them, but the godly judge is hardly cold in the ground before Israel with its sinful hearts is pressing after Canaan's gods yet again, showing that whatever their returns were for 40 years, their hearts are still under sin. It's a warning to us about the nature of sin Because the same could happen to us. We could go to church because it's the thing good people do or that Christians do. Or students, you could go to church because your parents bring you or have you come. And that in and of itself may say nothing about the actual state of our hearts. Because what we need is a true and genuine repentance and confession of sin and to personally look to Jesus in faith, to love Him with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength. Students, if that is not what you have done, your graduation from high school may be like the death of a godly judge, resulting in turning away from the Lord and doing what seems best to you, but what is evil in his sight. Here is Israel, with sin at play in their hearts, going after the same Baals and the same Ashtoreth, the same intermarrying of the Canaanites that brought misery last time. And so not surprisingly, because the Lord is faithful... We read that the Lord sold Israel under the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, and he oppressed Israel cruelly. If you have your Bibles and you want to flip over to chapter 5 at this point, verses 6 through 8 give us a little bit more detail on what it was like to live under the cruel oppression of Jabin. We read in verses 6 through 8 that during these days the highways were abandoned, travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. We read that 
There was war in the gates, but hardly a shield or spear was to be seen among 40,000 in Israel at this time. So here's the situation. The highways are abandoned. Villages are threatened. Shields and spears are nowhere but to be found as Israel is vulnerable and life was filled with uncertainty and danger under the cruel oppression of Jabin. But finally, after 20 years, the people cried out to Yahweh, turning to Him again, confessing their sins. The Lord's discipline did its purpose. Israel turns back to him and once again he answers their cry for help. So I want to turn now and look next at God's sovereign salvation. See, here again, God saves Israel in ways that are so unexpected and so unlikely that God must be the one behind them. And this is emphasized right away in chapter 4, verse 4. We've seen enough episodes of these judges to know the formula. Israel sins, God punishes them. Then Israel cries out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a deliverer. And so far, the deliverer has been a great military leader like Othniel or a a special operative like, like Ehud. And so when we read that Israel sinned, but then Israel cried out to the Lord, we're expecting in verse 4 to read, and the Lord raised up a deliverer, another mighty leader. But instead, in verse 4, we get... And Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel under a palm tree. And the question that would slam the reader in the face is this, it would be hard enough for a great leader like Othniel to beat Jabin and Sisera. After all, if you remember back in chapter 1, Judah's successful military campaign faltered in the face of a few chariots of iron, and these guys have 900 of them. And so the question they would be asking is, we're expecting to read in the Lord raised up a deliverer, but how is a a woman sitting under a palm tree going to deliver Israel? And we pause just for a moment. I think we should note that a, a woman speaking God's word to his people was not unusual. We find prophetesses all throughout the Old Testament. But it is unusual that Deborah is judging Israel. See, while God spoke to his people through both prophets and prophetesses, men and women, God had called men to the leadership roles of king and priest and judge, which would typically be the ones to decide these cases. But these aren't normal days. There are no kings in the land, or there is no king in the land, and there's no appointed leadership at all. So absent anyone filling the leadership positions, who are God's people going to go to for godly wisdom and advice? They go to the only source of godly wisdom there is. It's a prophetess through whom God is speaking. Much like the people will turn to Samuel, a prophet, several hundred years later when there still is no king in the land. Now in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 7, we get a beautiful phrase, I think, that describes those days. Deborah says that in those days, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. And I love that phrase. It speaks, I think, to the nature and the character of who Deborah was. Here is a woman that God has called to be a prophetess. A woman whose love for God's people, whose nurturing care and concern for God's people leads her to care for them and speak God's words to them in these dark days of oppression. But notice that Deborah is no Amazonian warrior woman. Deborah is not here to assert herself and take charge. Deborah is a mother in Israel. 
And so rather than leading Israel into battle, she brings God's word and summons the second character in this story, Barak, the son of Abinoam, to lead God's people. And notice in verse 7 what God asks Barak to do. That's chapter 4, verse 7. I realize we are flipping back and forth. But chapter 4, verse 7, notice what God asks Barak to do. He says, gather 10,000 men at Mount Tabor. That's it. That's all he's supposed to do. Gather men and take them to Tabor. The rest of the verse tells us what God is going to do. God is going to draw out Sisera to meet Barak by the river. God is going to give them into Barak's hand. In other words, God is promising to do all of the hard work of winning the battle, but he is asking Barak to step out in faith, to take a risk and gather the men of Israel to fight. Now Barak responds that he will go, but only if Deborah goes with him. Now, Barak gets a pretty bad rap for this response. He's called reluctant or cowardly or hesitant. That may be the, chant, that may be the, the case, but Barak's words can also be a response of faith, and I tend to read them that way myself. After all, despite the fact that Israel had had no answer for Jabin and Sisera for 20 years, and despite the fact that 10,000 men are going to lose to 900 chariots of iron 10 times out of 10, when God calls Barak to go, he says, I will go. And that's significant. His only request is that Deborah go with him. But remember that at this time, Deborah was the only source of God's word in those days. And so Barak's request, I think, is a statement of dependence. I will go, but I need God's word and presence to go with me. And that means, Deborah, that you would come with me. I read this story in light of or or thinking back to Moses in Exodus 33, when God said to Moses, lead these people from Sinai to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with them personally because of their sin. And what did Moses say? Exodus 33, 15, he said, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. In other words, Moses said, yes, I will go, but only if your presence goes with me. And I hear Barak saying the same thing. Yes, I will obey even when what seems impossible, but only if the word of God, if only with Deborah, goes with me. So Deborah quickly consents to go, and he leads 10,000 men to Mount Tabor. And true to his word, the Lord draws out all of Sisera's army and all of his chariots of iron to the river Kishon. And true to God's promise, Barak and his men rout Sisera and his army. Now, If I'm curious and I'm interested in battle and war and these things, one of my questions is, well, how exactly did this happen? How in the world did Israel beat these 900 chariots of iron and win the battle? Chapter 4 doesn't tell us, but chapter 5 does give us some clues. So flip back over in your Bibles to chapter 5 and look at verses 19 to 22. In this song we read in 19, the kings came together and fought in Canaan. And then we read in verse 20 that from heaven the stars fought. And from their courses they fought against Sisera. In some ways the heavens themselves are fighting against Sisera. Then we read verse 21, the torrent of Kishon. Remember that the river Kishon is where they've come out to fight. But now we read that a torrent, or you could say a flash flood from Kishon, has swept away Sisera's army. In other words, it seems that This plain, this flat area next to the river that Sisera had come on, 
was suddenly subject to a thunderstorm and a flash flood where the waters overflowed the torrent of Kishon. And what does that do to a bunch of chariots? Well, it leaves them stuck in the mud, just like it did at the Red Sea, leading the horses to stampede, as we read in verse 22. And so all of the commentators that I read were agreed. It seems that God in His sovereignty has brought an unexpected thunderstorm which leads the river to overflow its banks and leave those chariots of iron useless. And Barak then pursues the army, destroying Sisera's army as God brings the victory. But there is one loose end here. Sisera escapes. And so we enter now the third character of the story. This unexpected twist, yet again, plays out with this character of Jael. Now, if you were to flip back to chapter 4, as we're reading the story, verse 11 of chapter 4 does not seem to fit at all. If you were grading this story in English class, you would be putting red pen all through verse 11. Because in the middle of a story about Deborah and Barak and Sisera, it just says, now Heber the Kenite moved to Kadesh. End of story. Move on. Well, who in the world is Heber? We don't know. Why did he move to a better neighborhood in Kadesh? We don't know. What does that have to do with the story? We don't know. Until we get to verse 17. And then we find that God has been sovereignly at work even in causing one Israelite to move to another neighborhood. Because here Sisera flees and flees to the tents of Heber and his wife Jael. Thinking he's safe because there's peace between Heber and his master Jabin, Sisera begs Jael for a drink. She responds by hiding him under a rug, giving him some milk, and tucking him to bed. And after he tells her, look, if any Israelite special police forces show up at the door, throw him off track, he goes to sleep. And here, once again, just like in the last chapter, you should imagine just the joy and delight the Israelite readers as they see how God brings salvation as Jael after laying him under the rug and lulling him to sleep picks up a hammer and a tent peg and does him right through the head and you could imagine the Israelites saying here's the evil Sisera who has defeated Israel and humiliated Israel and robbed Israel and killed many Israelites and he meets his end at the hand of a woman with a tent peg That is God's great salvation. And just step back for a moment, will you? And just see how God is sovereign over every moment of this story. Years ahead of time, God led Heber to pick up his belongings and relocate to Kadesh so that his wife would be perfectly positioned with her tent peg. And on the day of the battle, God moved even the heavens to bring about this storm that Sisera certainly didn't expect rendering his chariots useless, throwing his army into a panic, and leading to victory for Barak. No wonder that chapter 4 concludes by saying, God subdued Jabin under the hand of Israel. This isn't Israel doing a mighty work to subdue Jabin. This is God's sovereign salvation at work. And no wonder that Deborah, when she goes to sing her song in chapter 5, begins by saying, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel, because He is the one who brought this salvation. And it's the same emphasis we should have too, isn't it? When we look at our own sinful hearts, 
There's nothing we can contribute or add to our salvation. God is the one who sends his son. God is the one who sends his son to live the perfect life we couldn't live, to die the death we couldn't die, to take the punishment we deserve, to bring him to life again from the dead that we might have life. It is God and his sovereign work that brings us salvation. And so we say glory to this sovereign God. But while the glory of this deliverance goes to God and God alone, let's finally and briefly not forget the significance of willing obedience from those that God uses to bring about this salvation. After all, while God's sovereign control over all things is our hope and our solid foundation, faith in such a sovereign God should lead us to courage and faithful obedience to live according to his word, regardless of what challenges or temptations stand in our way. You know, here in Judges 4, God promises he will bring the victory. But he still calls Deborah and Barak in jail to fight for the Lord. You know, I can only imagine what would have been going through my head if I was leading a motley band of 10,000 Israelites down Mount Tabor with a war machine waiting at the bottom of the hill. See, God didn't provide the salvation ahead of time. Barak didn't know exactly how it was going to happen. And yet he did it. He led as God called him to. Which is why Barak winds up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11.32 praises Barak who in faith conquered kingdoms. In Jael, Jael's family had peace with Jabin. Certainly it was a risk to take a tent peg to his favorite general. And yet she does so in faith, acting on behalf of his people. It's an interesting comment if you want to flip back over to chapter 5. Last time to flip over, I promise. But verses 13 to 18 in chapter 5 give us a fascinating comment on the blessing of acting in obedience. In verses 13 to 18, we find out that although Zebulon and Naphtali were the main bulk of Barak's force, he invited many other tribes to join him as well. And we find out that some did and some didn't. Verses 13, 14, 15, we find out that Ephraim and Benjamin and Issachar were represented and marched with Deborah and Barak. But then verse 16 pictures Reuben as carefully considering great searchings of heart as Reuben decides, should I join them, should I not? And he decides to sit among the sheepholds, sit still among the sheepholds, whistling for the flocks. Gilead, which is Manasseh, Dan, and Asher also decide to stay home. Perhaps they felt they should play it carefully. They'd love victory, of course, but better play the cards carefully in case we lose and we can tell Jabin, hey, we wouldn't have any part of this revolt. Even worse, down in verse 23, there's a town, Meraz. We don't know where Meraz was. Maybe it was close to where the battle took place, but Meraz earns a curse from the angel of the Lord himself because it did not come to the help of the Lord. Now, of course, the Lord doesn't need our help in the sense of depending upon us, but the Lord calls us to help him as the instruments he chooses to use when he calls us to. And so the result is in this victory poem, curse is given on those who refuse to answer the Lord's call, while blessing comes to those who fight, who answer the Lord's call. I think maybe my favorite comment in Judges 5 is given both in verse 2 and then it's repeated in verse 9. And the comment is this, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly 
bless the Lord. Of course we know God is sovereign and nothing can thwart his will, but what a blessing when we see men and women answering his call and stepping out in faith to obey him. Many of you know the name of Amy Carmichael, and you probably know her for her missionary work in India. But Amy Carmichael went briefly to Japan first, and it's said that in the house where she stayed, two words are written on the paper on the wall. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Two words as she willingly offered herself to the Lord's call. You know, the joy of willing service may come in missionary service overseas. It may come from serving in the church, from generosity, from hospitality, from evangelism here at home. The call, the hope is that God's people would willingly offer themselves. Tim Keller, reflecting on this verse, says, What is the lesson for God's people? The lesson is God wins. And so blessing is found in fighting for and with him putting ourselves in his service, whatever the odds or whatever the likely cost. God saves, and he does it in a way only he could bring about. But may we as a congregation like Israel not be sitting back, hedging our bets, or whistling safe in our pastures. May it be said of us that the leaders in God's church led, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Well, here we've seen God's salvation. Unexpected ways God brought about this salvation in Judges 4 and 5. But remember, God didn't stop working in unexpected ways then. He's acted in even more unexpected ways. He sent His own Son, the second person of the Trinity, to earth as a human, born of an unmarried virgin in an unclean stable in order to die and rise again from the dead on the third day. That is unexpected. And that could only be brought about by a sovereign God working on behalf of his people. And so may we, as we read God's character here in Judges, be reminded that that is still his character. And he's acted in even more unexpected ways than a woman under a palm tree, or a guy in a thunderstorm, or a woman with a tent peg. He has sent Jesus Christ as our Savior. May we trust in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is your word and how we thank you for it. May our hearts be encouraged and strengthened as we see the character of our God who sovereignly, in his perfect ways, in his perfect time, brings salvation to his people. And may we put our full faith and trust in him and in his son Jesus whom he has sent. How we thank you for such an unexpected salvation that the God we offended would send his son to take our punishment to save us and make us his. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.